At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. It's man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. Monday edition of the PFTPM podcast, Getaway Day, heading to Indianapolis on Tuesday. Plenty of teams getting ready to go to Indy, taking care of some business. More on that in a second. But the news that just came down as of the commencement of the taping of this edition of the PFTPM podcast, the commissioner reportedly expected to fine Cowboys owner Jerry Jones, quote, millions of dollars, end quote, for his efforts to derail negotiations of Goodell's contract and for his outspoken defense of Cowboys running back Ezekiel Elliott. Five unnamed league officials with direct knowledge of the situation have provided that information to Ken Belson of the New York Times. And the way this would go, this is under the power that the commissioner has to refer to the Management Council's executive committee any punishment that would go beyond the $500,000 that the NFL can fine someone via the authority of the commissioner. It can be referred to the Management Council Executive Committee for a bigger punishment if the commissioner believes that a bigger punishment is warranted. And look, ultimately the commissioner has to want this, but it's more than just the commissioner. Because on the surface, it feels like there's a conflict of interest that is percolating in the midst of this because the commissioner is the one whom Jerry Jones targeted when the stuff hit the fan back during the 2017 season. And it was an issue throughout the 2017 season up until the point where the owners decided to go ahead and finalize the commissioner's contract. Jones tried and tried and tried to delay the process, to derail the process, and ultimately he wanted to install a new commissioner. We never quite knew who he wanted to install. I remember at one point there was a laughable report from someone that Bill Polian was the, Yeah, Bill Polian was never going to be the commissioner of the NFL. But Jones mainly wanted someone other than Goodell. This was his shot. He took it, and it didn't work. And now he's paying the consequences, and there isn't a damn thing he can do about it because it's not just the commissioner. And what Jones did that raised the ire of the NFL was that he essentially aired out dirty laundry. He did things beyond what should have been normal protocol, which is talking among fellow owners about whether or not the commissioner's contract should be extended, and if so, on what terms, by leaking negative content to the public, by threatening to sue his colleagues, by actually retaining a lawyer and engaging in this back and forth. And I think the cardinal sin, and this isn't mentioned from what I can see in scrolling through the article in the New York Times. I think he crossed the line when he allegedly cajoled Papa John to publicly criticize the NFL. And that's not mentioned in this article. And I think that is the main reason why the NFL ended up clapping back 
at Jerry Jones and will fine him, quote, millions of dollars, end quote. And remember, when this all was its ugliest, what we reported, and folks laughed it off, but it's true. There were owners who were mentioning the nuclear option, the ability to force Jerry Jones to sell his franchise. Ultimately, what Panthers owner Jerry Richardson decided to do on his own once he found himself under investigation for multiple instances of workplace misconduct that resulted in a league investigation. So Jones is facing the consequences. Now, look, the guy's got billions. This isn't going to hurt him. It's embarrassing more than anything else. It'll be interesting to see how many millions millions are. Is it two? Is it five? Is it ten? What is it? The punishment is going to be issued in the coming weeks. The NFL will have its annual meeting in Orlando four weeks from now. Will it be done before then? Will it be done after then? That will obviously be the talk of the of the meetings, whether the punishment has been levied or has yet to be levied. And this Ezekiel Elliott component, loud lobbying for Ezekiel Elliott not to be penalized and reportedly trying to influence league officials, uh, league officials who were deciding his case. I remember there was a report back in the 2016 season of a verbal confrontation with Lisa Friel, the person who's essentially in charge in-house of league discipline. That one is a surprise because you'd think there'd be greater leeway for an owner to publicly question a situation where he believes his team is being unfairly compromised by the application of league rules. But the assault on the commissioner, the way that it was done, the involvement of Papa John, those are all things that push the NFL to the point where now, through Goodell, and, and it is, <laughs> look, this is what happens. If you take your shot at the person who runs the sport and you miss you better be ready for the blowback. And the blowback is coming for Jerry Jones. And what's he going to do about it? What's he going to do? Is he going to fight it? Is he going to make it worse by filing a lawsuit? Is he going to file an appeal? Who's going to handle the appeal? The same person who's issuing the punishment. So it's better for him just to cry uncle, pay the check. It's a write-off. And you move forward. All right, we move forward with teams moving on. From multiple veterans, there's been news today that the Panthers moved on from safety Kirk Coleman, defensive end Charles Johnson. Remember, he was the guy who got the big contract right after the the lockout ended. One of three Panthers who got big contracts in the aftermath of the lockout. And Johnson's was six years, $72 million for the pass rusher who, who had never had a huge season before that. He went on to earn much of that contract, but in recent years has not been as effective. The Bears moved on from linebacker Pernell McPhee and also Quentin Demps. And look, it's fair and it's proper, I think, to do this now because get these guys out on the market now with the scouting combine coming this week. It's an opportunity for these folks to go out and try to find a new a new home. And I respect that. Make these decisions. If you already know what you're going to do, make it official now. Get it out there and give these folks a full and fair opportunity to sign new contracts with new teams, and that's what's going to be going on at the scouting combine. Potential free agents will be tampered with on a widespread basis, and actual free agents, guys who have been cut, who have had their contracts terminated as of right now, and if more happen tomorrow and the next day, 
those guys are free to sign at any time. They they instantly become free agents if they have four or more years of service. If you have less than that, you have to pass through waivers. More than that, you can go anywhere you want, whenever you want. And Coleman, Johnson, McPhee, and Demps, among the four who are now able to go anywhere they want to go, and they'll have the scouting combine to ask their agents to see what may be out there for them. It's a two-week head start on the opening of free agency. The scouting combine has a variety of on-field Events And by the way, I'm doing five down territory. I've now moved to third down. The 40-yard dash, the marquee event of the scouting combine, it gets divided up by various position groups. And John Ross, the former Washington receiver, set the all-time record last year, running the 40-yard dash faster than, my God, how quickly we forget, CJ2K, Chris Johnson the former NFL running back, first-round pick of the Titans, who has now essentially washed out of the NFL. He tried to stick last year with the Cardinals. He was cut for Adrian Peterson. And he was once the fastest person to ever run the 40. Now it's John Ross. And John Ross, who did nothing as a rookie, top 10 pick of the Bengals, absolutely did nothing. He recently said, at the end of the day, it really doesn't mean that much to me. I'd rather be playing than recognized for running. I try not to dwell on it. I feel like football is more important to me. I try not to think about it. My name is surfacing again because of the combine. I really haven't thought about it too much until now. And his name is going to come up, especially because one of these guys, and I can't remember who, is aspiring to break the record. And and look, that's competitive fire coming through. But how many times you bench 225 pounds, how fast you run in a straight line, how high you jump, any of these things, doesn't matter. And the worst thing you can do is injure yourself trying to trying to win at a competition that really doesn't matter and that isn't going ultimately to get you drafted all that much higher. Although I guess if you have a blazing 40 time and you run it faster than anybody else, that may contribute to you being a high draft pick. Although the experience of John Ross could cause teams to say, yeah, yeah, uh, just because a guy runs really fast in a straight line, that that isn't something we should get too worked up over. As I say all the time, The only occasions on a football field when someone runs 40 yards in a straight line is when something really good has happened or something really bad has happened. And even then, it never happens without pads on. And and every year, these arguments come up, and they never really go anywhere because the NFL is loath to do anything that would change the apples-to-apples comparison because it's not just comparing all the guys now against each other. It's comparing this class against last year's class against a class from 30 years ago. They don't want to change anything. They don't even change the Wonderlick test. They want to have a way to make an apples-to-apples comparison from year to year, decade to decade, generation to generation. So even though it may make more sense to do some of these events differently, they would lose the ability to have a reliable comparison. I mean, 100 years from now, they can compare 40-yard dash times to those from 2018, 2015, 2010, whatever the case may be. And there's that obsession with the consistency that comes from the ability to say, here are these guys as compared to each other, and here are these guys as compared to every other class of players that came to the scouting combine. That is third down. Fourth down, there was a report earlier today, which really isn't a surprise, and I think it's fairly obvious. The Vikings aren't going to apply the franchise tag to Case Keenum. That came from NFL media. Yeah, of course they're not, because to do so would cost $24 million. And then to tag him again 
next year would entail a 20% increase. And let me just calculate this. I don't want to, first of all, I don't know that I can do the math quickly. I can do this more quickly. 24 times 1.2 is 28.8. That would be the second year franchise tender for Case Keenum with the 20% raise that gets factored in. First year, you get the base tender amount for quarterbacks or a 20% increase over whatever your franchise tender was the prior year, whichever's greater. And then year two, 20% raise over the tender. Year three, 44% raise over that increased tender. So 24 this year, 28.8 next year. That's nearly $53 million over two years. That's what it would take to get Case Keenum signed to a long-term contract if the franchise tag is the starting point. And we learned that basic math with Kirk Cousins because Washington consistently refused to offer him a contract that was based on the franchise tag. When they tagged him the first time at $19.95 million, I think they offered him like $16 million a year. Well, why the hell should I do that? I'm getting $19.95 million this year, $23.94 million next year. That's nearly $44 million over two years. I'll just take that. So... That's why Cousins never did a long-term deal, and I think that's why the Vikings realize that signing Keenum to the one-year franchise tender or trying to sign him to a long-term contract based on the tender, way too expensive and not a practical solution. They need to have a long-term answer at quarterback, whoever it is. You know, I've been saying this for a while now. They haven't had a year-to-year franchise quarterback who has survived more than a few years since Fran Tarkenton. I mean, when you think about it, Randall Cunningham, seriously, because you've got Tarkenton played into the late 70s, and Tommy Kramer, not really a franchise quarterback, but the best they had until the mid to late 80s, and then you had that revolving door, Wade Wilson, Sean Salisbury, Rich Gannon, and Gannon went on to be a league MVP somewhere else, never got it done in Minnesota. Then Warren Moon, for a couple of years late in his career, gave way to Brad Johnson, gave way to Randall Cunningham, gave way to Jeff George, gave way to Dante Culpepper, who was the guy for a few years until his knee got imploded, and then more revolving door of just okay until, I mean, Brad Johnson came back at one point, remember that? And then Teddy Bridgewater was supposed to be the answer. He had two years. There were high hopes for a, a dramatic increase in his improvement in 2016. The torn ACL happened with extra damage. He's healthy now. I don't know that the Vikings want to make the investment in him financially. I don't think they're ready to pin their hopes to Bridgewater, which comes with the risk that he goes somewhere else and he becomes the guy that he could have been two years ago in Minnesota. And and this is the problem the Vikings have. Okay, you don't tag Keenum. That doesn't mean they're not going to re-sign Keenum. Someone suggested to me over the weekend a short-term deal with Keenum, almost like Bortles. Blake Bortles got in Jacksonville. Not quite $18 million a year for three, maybe two years at $15 million per year, which is still a dramatic increase for Keenum over what he got last year, one year, $2 million, but, but would put him you know, at Tom Brady money, which, yeah, not a bad deal on the surface until you realize Tom Brady's making $15 million a year. So I think the Vikings would still be interested in signing Keenum. They just want to take the franchise tag off the table. So before we have any conversations, Case, and it's almost like the Vikings are, I don't know who's leaking this, but let's assume the Vikings are putting it out there. The message is almost, hey, anybody else who wants to come try and sign Case Keenum, talk to his agent at the combine. Go ahead. Let's see what the market's going to be. 
because we're confident the market's not going to be what maybe Keenum thinks it's going to be. And that's kind of the message that that I've gotten from several people since the Blake Bortles deal was announced. Three years, $54 million base value for Bortles. My initial thought on Saturday night when I put together the list of annual uh, averages of all quarterbacks, I, I put Keenum at 20, I put McCarron at 19, A.J. McCarron, the Bengals backup. I'd probably put those lower if I was doing it now. And I think the, the key line of demarcation for those guys is going to be Bortles. Can they do a better deal than Bortles? And I'm not sure either can. I'm not sure either can. And when you go past Bortles, there aren't many veteran quarterbacks. You've got A.J., not A.J. McCarron, but Andy Dalton at $16 million and change. You've got Tyrod Taylor. You've got Tom Brady. And then you've got all the guys who are working under the terms of, of rookie deals that are slotted. There are a lot of guys, almost 10, I think, who are laboring under this rookie wage scale controlled contract. And that's one of the reasons why, across the board, the market hasn't gone up maybe the way it should. The NFL got what it wanted back in 2011 with a true rookie wage scale, which took away the dramatic windfall for everyone taken at the top of the draft in order to avoid Ryan Leaf, Jamarcus Russell, high-profile busts who make millions and never earn it. The problem is you took away the windfall for the guys who would earn it, the Larry Fitzgeralds of the world, the Calvin Johnsons, for example, the Indomitian Sues. And those guys now, when it's time for them to do a second contract, first of all, the teams are dragging their feet. Look how many guys from the class of 2014 are entering their fifth year. They should have new contracts by now. Blake Bortles got one only because he was in a position to kind of leverage one, kind of. He didn't have a whole lot of leverage, but the Jaguars realized we may be spending a lot more for someone who isn't that much better than Bortles. Let's flip his $19 million fifth-year option into an $18 million per year average. Good deal for him. Good deal for them. No one else was going to play or pay Bortles. No one else was going to guarantee him a week one starting job. You know, someone else may have offered him $17 million, $16 million, and he could have been this year's Mike Glennon, where he's the number one guy until that team drafts someone in round one. So bottom line is the Vikings essentially encouraging Keenum to go out and, and see what he can get. And then maybe the Vikings swoop in and offer more than what anyone else offers. Now, the thing is, Keenum can say, hey, you've disrespected me. You disrespected me throughout the 2017 season. I'll take less somewhere else. Okay, fine. The Vikings will move on to another option. And, and that's both the blessing and the curse for the Vikings. They have the ability to sign anyone they want. They've got three of the unrestricted free agents on their roster. Keenum, Sam Bradford, Teddy Bridgewater. And they can go Kirk Cousins. They can go A.J. McCarron. They could go Josh McCown and draft someone at number 30. They could make a big offer to Drew Brees if they want to try to go Brett Favre all over again. The challenge, though, is the reality, the downside, you pick a door at some point. You got any door you want for now. At some point, you got to pick a door. And you run the risk that you pick the wrong door. And that your quarterback ends up stinking and Bridgewater, Bradford, and Keenum all do well somewhere else. And, and look, there's a small chance that's going to happen. Bradford can't stay healthy. Bridgewater, who knows if he'll ever be the guy he was supposed to be. Even if he's healthy, will he ever be the guy he was supposed to be in 2016 when it was all, when it was all being built around him? And Keenum, 
Look, if if Pat Shermer, the former Vikings offensive coordinator, ends up being the head coach in Arizona, then it's a no-brainer. It's Keenum and Shermer in Arizona. Now, where's Keenum's landing spot? Where does he go? The Browns? The Jets? The Cardinals, I don't know that they're going to want him. I feel like there's a collective pushback now against this idea that ridiculous money is going to get paid to these quarterbacks simply because they're available and there are teams who need them. And is it collusion? Maybe. Is it a coincidental recognition that we're not going to overpay? If the Jaguars are smart enough to realize they're not going to overpay because they need money for their other guys, so they sign Blake Bortles, are these other teams out of line by coming independently to the conclusion it's stupid to overpay. The Cardinals opting out of Kirk Cousins. The Jets making it clear they're not going to give him a blank check. I had thought Cousins was going to get 29. Now, and originally I thought he'd get 30. And I thought, okay, 29. Now who knows? Now maybe it's just 28. Now maybe all anyone is willing to do is make Cousins the next guy who pushes the bar a half million dollars per year higher. And where's Drew Brees fit into all of this? I know he said at least four times he wants to stay with the Saints. If I'm Drew Brees and I see that Jimmy Garoppolo, who has seven career starts, is at $27.5 million, and he was able to get that deal despite the possibility of being tagged and Brees can't be tagged, how does Brees not want $28 million? How does he not wait for Cousins to get $28 and then say, I want $28.5? And would someone other than the Saints pay him that? Or will they decide, well, you know, for some of these older guys, you never know when the wheels are going to fall off. And once the legs go, that's it. And yeah, Tom Brady's played well past his 40th birthday. But with Drew Brees, the last thing you want to do is give him a ton of money and have him not be the guy all of a sudden that he used to be. That's, that's a realistic problem for the Saints. So, And for anyone else who may sign him to big money. So we'll see how this one shakes out. And I don't know if we'll start to get any reports during the week of the scouting combine regarding what other teams are willing to pay for some of these other quarterbacks, what's being offered. But I think it's going to be much more of a challenge to win the lottery than we thought it was going to be. It's not going to be like Kirk Cousins bumping to 32, 33 million, some of these other guys falling in behind it. It's just not going to happen. And at some point, Brady's got to get an adjustment to his contract. He's got to. It's, it's too conspicuous now when he is the lowest average per year of any veteran quarterback. Something weird's going on. And he's due to make $14 million this year and $14 million next year. And these were kind of placeholder years because nobody knew how long he was going to play. I think this is the year they were hoping maybe he'd step aside and Jimmy Garoppolo could take over. Now they got to address his contract. Fake Don Yee, who supposedly made contractual demands a couple of weeks ago in those phony text messages that were sent to Ron Borges of the Boston Herald. Fake Don Yee may have been right on the money. All right, those are five downs, I think. I don't know. I always lose count. Somebody suggested not that long ago, why don't you ditch the format because you lose count every day? I just need something. I need a crutch. I need something that I can call the format, and that's typically what it's been over the past couple of weeks, five down territory. And now we get to questions and already there are more than 50 of them. And I will answer as many as I can in 
however long I can continue to do this today. At the Impact 99, who is the most laid-back owner and GM that you enjoy talking with on or off the microphone? See, the problem is if I pick one, then it's at the exclusion of others. From a GM perspective, I like having conversations with Thomas Dimitrov of the Falcons. He's a smart guy. He's a thoughtful guy. And he doesn't try to, to BS you. He tries to give you a real answer to your questions. And he understands that there are ways to answer questions that don't compromise your interests. Too many people have that wall where they think, i got to be careful here. You're trying to get me to say something. Or this is some sort of a battle of wits and will. And it's strange that Dimitrov would would have that approach when he cut his teeth working with Bill Belichick, who never gives you anything because he's afraid anything he says can and will be used against him or there's some angle that he's not thinking of. There are plenty of things that you can say that that make for interesting conversation, that, that help the media do their job, and that don't undermine your strategic interests as a coach or an executive. So... Uh, and, and off the record or on the record or off, I don't know, on and off the mic, I want to be careful about, you know, you never want to get into your, into your off the record relationships because then you start giving away some of your sources and, and that's not good for anybody because there's a lot of trust that goes into this business when you're talking to people off the record, when people are giving you ideas, you know, a lot of what I get is not necessarily hard information from someone about their own team but ideas about things that are happening, rumors that are being disseminated. And I don't want to start listing, you know, off the mic, off the record, who I like talking to, but but officially on the record, like we had a 70-minute conversation last year with Thomas Dimitrov when they were making the rounds in New York to promote their, their new stadium that opened last year. And, and it was a lot of fun, and that 70 minutes flew by. So I guess I would say him, but I'm sure there are others as well. And we're talking to a lot of them coming up in Indianapolis. We got a bunch scheduled for Wednesday, like a dozen coach and GM interviews will occur throughout the day on Wednesday. And then into Thursday, we'll have more Friday. I think by then it starts to slow down the way they've, they've adjusted the workouts now. And I think like the running back workouts are now on Friday. They have other things to do those days, but Wednesday and Thursday, we're going to be harvesting a lot of sound, a lot of video that you'll be seeing at profootballtalk.com that will be making its way into the PFTPM podcast. And then next week when we return on NBCSN, back on NBCSN after the Olympics, Chris Sims will be back and you'll see us next Monday and you'll see some of these interviews that we'll be doing as well. At Recliner QB, is the management council the best council to be on in the NFL? Who is on it? Definitely need more PFTPM and the real, quote, Florio, end quote, and his salty language. It's not that salty. I just say shit once in a while. That's not that salty. Most of the stuff, like when I was a kid, I remember you never heard suck and fart on TV. Like, that was a big deal. I remember watching Saturday Night Live in the mid-70s, and Lorraine Newman used the word sucks. And I couldn't believe it. Now you hear that all the time. Fart. Used to not hear that on TV. Now, like George Carlin, have to go back and do his routine, whether it's FCC or non-FCC. You hear a lot of these words now on TV, so it's not all that salty. I'm still not going to chance it on radio because NBC Sports Radio, through its various affiliates, public airwaves, FCC regulated, you got to be careful. Serious, you can say whatever you want. Podcast, you can say whatever you want. And I don't want to get too comfortable 
saying whatever I want to a microphone because I don't want to forget what show I'm doing at any given moment. And then you end up, you know, with a problem. If you think it's afternoon and it's morning and you're on FCC regulated stations and you drop an F-bomb. Not that I don't, I haven't even dropped an F-bomb on this yet. That, that's the one line that I've yet to cross and maybe I will. Who knows? And management council is the best council to be on. I don't know who all's on it. I'd have to look it up. John Mara's on it. That, that's why there's a perception that John Mara runs the league because I think he's the chairman of the management council. And it's really the management council executive committee. That's the even smaller cabal that runs the league. And, you know, when we talk about collusion, as it comes up with what people are going to pay quarterbacks or whatever, the collusion doesn't happen with teams secretly meeting in someone's lair, you know, with a, a big cloud of cigar smoke and martinis or scotch or whatever. It happens through the management council and through the league office. And the same message is sent out to every team through that centralized location. That's how the collusion occurs. It's the league office and the management council keeping everyone in line. That's, that's the more common conduit of collusion. And I think that in the Colin Kaepernick collusion grievance, that's how they will try to prove collusion. There was never a meeting of all teams where someone banged a gavel and they said, okay, next on the agenda, Colin Kaepernick, should he be employed or not in the NFL? All in favor of shunning him, say aye. That's not how it works. It's people in the league office communicating to the other teams, the various teams, that Colin Kaepernick's bad for the NFL. Colin Kaepernick will turn off the fan base of the NFL. That's, that's the, the way that it, potentially happened with Kaepernick, and that's the way it happens, I think, on other issues. At fake Kevin Kugler, can the NFL just dissolve the Chiefs after they got fleeced by the Rams? Longtime Chiefs fan, first-time tweeter. Hey, it was a week ago I had plenty of Chiefs fans and Chiefs-centric websites crapping all over me for suggesting, and, and, and again, I want to be accurate in what I said. I said there were people in the league wondering whether or not Marcus Peters would be available. I never said he would be traded. I never said he was on the trade block. I never said the Rams are going to trade for him. In hindsight, I wish I'd said they're shopping him and they're going to trade him to the Rams. I wish I'd been that, that far out on a limb. I passed along what I heard. The question that was being raised, is Marcus Peters available? The reality is he was being shopped at the time, or at least he was being at the time, the subject of trade discussions between the Rams and the Chiefs. And it's a fourth-round pick this year, a second-round pick next year for Marcus Peters. But that just tells you that the Chiefs were motivated to move on from Marcus Peters for whatever reason. Now, some suggest that the not standing for the national anthem is a reason. Some suggest that the disruptiveness of Marcus Peters. All things considered, the Chiefs decided it was in their best long-term interest to take a four and a two to move on from Marcus Peters, despite the fact that he's one of the best cornerbacks in the NFL after only three NFL seasons. At Terry Gensler 14, can you explain how teams can spend over the cap? This one's very simple. The salary cap isn't a cash spending limitation. It is a cash accounting. If you give someone a $10 million signing bonus now on a five-year deal, you get $2 million that count each year under the cap. So, for example, 
$10 million signing bonus, five-year deal, $10 million in cash paid this year, $2 million cap charge that counts for this year. That's how you spend cash above cap. You give out a bunch of signing bonuses, or you take players with bloated contracts, like Indomitian Sue with his $17 million in Miami. You take $15 million of it, and you turn it into a signing bonus, and that gets spread over the last three years of his contract. $5 million this year, $5 million next year, $5 million the following year. So you've given him $15 million up front, only $5 million of it counts against the cap. So you're spending $10 million over cap. And that's how you end up spending under the cap. I mean, I was stunned to see how far the Cowboys were below the cap in their actual spending last year, but that's because they've loaded the cannon up in the past, and they've got to manage the cap. Jerry Jones has said, you'd be shocked at the size of the check that I would write to help myself buy a Super Bowl championship. And the problem is he's written those big checks in the past. At some point, you've got to have your day of reckoning and you've got to pay less. And with Ezekiel Elliott on a slotted rookie contract and Dak Prescott on a slotted rookie contract, last year was a good time to spend under the cap and and pay for some of those past spending sprees. So that's how you spend over the cap. And it used to be a bigger deal for the NFL. There used to be a lot of the teams, most of the teams, we're in cap trouble. Now there's just enough. But but they, even those teams aren't in cap purgatory. I remember when there were teams that were just like, we basically have to mail it in this year because we can't field a team. we got to get rid of key veterans, and we can't replace them with free agents. We just have to rely on young players. That hasn't happened in a while for the NFL. Teams find a way to get it done, and the cap keeps going up at a, at a fast enough rate that teams can kick the can. If the cap would ever begin to go the other way. If it would start going down $10 million a year instead of up $10 million a year, then you'd have some teams that maybe would have some serious problems. Next up, at D. Fleety, why won't the Islanders fire their general manager? I don't even know who the Islanders' general manager is. At B. Zenzen, will you ever do a podcast with this man again? That's not Artie Lang. It, is that Artie Lang? That's Artie Lang with a broken nose if that's Artie Lang. Hashtag football feast. Is that really Artie Lang? 12-12-17 mugshot? Sure doesn't look like him. At Amit Tamar, regarding the Cincinnati quarterback situation, you mentioned yourself last week. Dalton has a $16 million average contract, and many fans want to change. Why not trade him to a needy team while signing A.J. McCarron to a Mike Glennon contract and see what you got? You either succeed or move on to a rookie quarterback. Well, I think they like Dalton enough to keep him at $16 million a year. I think they're happy to keep Andy Dalton. And I don't know what McCarron's going to get. I'd like to think he's going to get more than Andy Dalton. But who knows? He's got four career starts. Now, those four career starts more meaningful than the seven that Jimmy Garoppolo had. Because Jimmy Garoppolo didn't have any, any starts with playoff appearances on the line, and he didn't start a playoff game. Dalton came in and had three starts in December during meaningful playoff time football. A Monday night game in Denver that could have helped deliver a bye week for the Bengals. He took the Broncos to overtime in December of 2015 and then took the Steelers to the limit, did everything he could to win that game. Even though his numbers weren't stellar, he did enough. And the game was won until the defense had a meltdown. At Shant Ohanian, considering the Blake Bortles extension, what amount would you expect Dak Prescott to get if he was eligible for an extension this offseason? Well, I mean, he's not, so... 
it's a moot point. The question is next year when he is eligible after his third NFL season. And he is a distant 30th for the quarterbacks, the starting quarterbacks currently under contract. He is so deep on the list of quarterback contracts going into the 2017 season that I missed him when I put together the list the other night. The list of names of quarterbacks who had a higher annual average than Dak Prescott going into 2017, it's embarrassing how low Dak Prescott ended up on that list because he's on a fourth-round 2016 slotted rookie contract, $680,000 average. The question is going to become after this season, what do the Cowboys do? Do they give him market value? What's going to be the benchmark for Dak Prescott? And one thing the Cowboys benefited from with, with Tony Romo, and my theory with Tony Romo, he never pushed for top dollar because he never expected to get top dollar. He was just happy to be there. He was thrilled to be playing in the NFL. He was thrilled to be the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, and I think some of that will rub off on Dak Prescott. And, you know, it's the guys who have made the most money who are in position to drive the hardest bargain. Because they can say, hey, I'll push this to the limit. I got so much money in the bank, I don't need this next contract, but I want market value. Those are the guys more inclined to be what Tom Curran would call the pig at the trough. That's what he accused Peyton Manning of even though Peyton Manning was anything but a pig at the trough when he signed his contract with the Broncos. You know, back to Kirk Cousins. I get the impression Kirk Cousins is trying to finagle this so top dollar is on the table, and then he'll make his decision once everyone has played their hand as to what they're willing to pay. With Peyton Manning six years ago, he basically entered the process, and maybe he had the gravitas to do that in 2012 based on what he'd accomplished. He entered the process saying, look, I'm picking my next team. And then it'll be easy to negotiate the contract. And that's how it went. And he still got close to the top of the market. But it was more important for him to pick the right team. With Cousins, there's a little hint of that. But he wants to see what everyone's going to pay before he decides which team he wants. So uh, with Prescott, I could see the Cowboys swoop in after this year and not necessarily pay him top of the market, but pay him enough that he'll gladly take it and he'll understand that he needs to leave money behind so the Cowboys can continue to be competitive and he can continue to be the the franchise quarterback. And, and look, the less you're making, the lower your cap number, the less vulnerable you are to the team saying, you know what, if I'm paying this guy this much, I'll just get somebody else and pay him less, or I'll get somebody a lot better and pay him more. At the real Nick B78, how did the Rams get Marcus Peters for a fourth and a second? That is ridiculous. Look, the Chiefs were ready to move on, and I think the Chiefs called multiple teams, and teams just weren't interested because th- th- there was already a sense that Marcus Peters has been a handful, and other teams didn't want to mess with that. I just wonder if the Anthem stuff was a big issue for the Chiefs, and and I wonder how much of that ends up becoming a new subplot to the Colin Kaepernick collusion grievance. I mean, think about the argument, even though I don't see Peters making the argument, because, I mean, he's still getting paid what he was going to get paid. Now, maybe he'll have an argument if the Rams don't offer him a top-shelf contract. But if I'm Colin Kaepernick and I'm trying to prove that the NFL colluded against me because of the anthem issue, and I can point to Marcus Peters, and I can say, look, they dumped this guy. One of the best corners in the game, they dumped him like a hot potato. So there are teams out there that don't want to touch these guys who have been remotely connected in any way to the anthem controversy. 
at Jaken Progress, does Marcus Peters put the Rams over the top and make them your favorite team in the NFC? No. The Rams still have a way to go. The Rams need to get some of these young players signed to their second contracts because they're they're gonna they're gonna run into trouble. You've got Aaron Donald, Todd Gurley, Marcus Peters, Jared Goff, Sammy Watkins, or Lamarcus Joyner will become free agents. One may be franchise tagged. You don't want to end up being the Seahawks where one day you wake up and you realize we got a bunch of guys with market value contracts. Now what do we do? And then you start shedding them left and right. You got to make tough decisions, I think, before you give a guy a market value contract. And ideally, you want players who have the same mindset that so many Patriots do, where they don't insist on market value. They want something special to continue. And man, how amazing it is that the Patriots are able not just to spot talented players, but players who will submit to the way they do business. I'm sure every team would love to do that. But it's hard to find players who will submit. And the key is to have a franchise quarterback who gladly submits. Because I can imagine, I don't know this for a fact, but I can imagine that during these contract negotiations, if a player asks for market value, the Patriots will say, look, look at what Tom Brady gets. How? Do, who are you to ask for market value? Now, they did give essentially market value to Stephon Gilmore last year, but I think that that plenty of their own free agents get worked on from the perspective of what Tom Brady consistently does. And here's the other thing, too. Now that Stephon Gilmore's in the system, like after a year or two, watch for Stephon Gilmore to start cutting his pay like Danny Amendola did. Remember, he had kind of a slot receiver market-level contract when he joined the team in 2013. And then it seemed like every year after that, restructured his deal, restructured his deal, restructured his deal. Last year, he went from $6 million down to $1.7. And now he's going to be a free agent. You think he's going to leave? He's only leaving if he retires. At Terry Gensler 14, you were wondering aloud last week who Mike Vick took over for in Philadelphia. Kevin Cobb was hurt in the opener against Green Bay in 2010. Cobb never got the job back. Not really a question. <laughs> Thank you. Keep the PFT PMs coming. I love hearing the fly-on-the-wall side of things. T- Thank you, Terry Gensler. And you're right. It was, it was Cobb that got injured, and then Vick took the job and never looked back. And that's how fragile the starting quarterback job is if the other guy comes in and plays well. And that's one of the realities for Carson Wentz. That's why I made the argument that maybe what the Eagles should do is trade Nick Foles just so Carson Wentz doesn't push himself too hard, doesn't become RG3, worried about Kirk Cousins starting week one of the 2013 season and playing well enough that he earns a start week two and playing well enough that he earns a start week three. I could see Nick Foles doing that, especially when the week one Thursday night game, hanging the banner. Do they hang a banner in an open-air stadium? They, they know who we mean. Celebrating the Super Bowl championship. The guy who won the Super Bowl, starting that night, winning that night, playing well that night, he earns a start week two, earns a start week three. And the next thing you know, there's been a de facto benching of Carson Wentz. At Darren M. Ova, it doesn't sound like the Vikings are going to keep Case, keep Case Keenum any idea on where he will be playing next year. I, you know, I touched on this earlier. Just because they didn't tag him doesn't mean they're not going to keep him. I think, now that I've had a chance to think about it, the fact that they have made it known now that they're not tagging Case Keenum, I think that's an invitation to Keenum and his agent to go ahead, go ahead, go, go find an offer. Jacksonville's not in play. Who's going to sign Case Keenum? Who's going to offer him $20 million a year? Anyone? I don't think so. And I think that's why the Vikings did not tag him. Why are you going to start at $24 million for a guy who's not going to get $20 million on the open market? 
And maybe the Vikings have decided that they're going to try to keep Keenum by matching or beating the best offer he finds out there. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if this is part of the, the the approach. And if Keenum decides to go somewhere else, all right, well, we'll do something else instead. And they can at some point put the squeeze on Keenum. What happens during that 48-hour negotiating window, you have teams that are very aggressive. I need to know what you're going to do because we're moving on to the next one. So now Keenum essentially gets to gauge the market in advance of the 48-hour window. He'll know what's out there. He'll know what's not out there. And I could see the Vikings swoop in when the 48-hour window opens and says, this is our offer. I need to know right now whether you're going to take it. If not, we're moving on to the next guy. And there have been plenty of deals done between teams and their own soon-to-be free agents during that 48-hour window. And if I recall correctly, I think that's when the Vikings signed Everson Griffin. They knew there was other interest out there. They swooped in and they outbid anybody else that was interested in Griffin and they got the deal done. And I could see it setting up that same way for Case Keenum if that's the guy John DeFilippo wants. I mean, basically, this is DeFilippo's call. If he decides he wants Keenum, there's a pathway now to getting Keenum signed during that 48-hour negotiating window. And if it's not Keenum, it's someone else. But they're not going to start at $24 million. They'd rather go in a different direction than pay someone like Keenum $24 million under the franchise tag. And are they in play for Kirk Cousins? Well, they're going to have to lose some of their core players if they'd sign Cousins unless they can convince Cousins to take less. At Dustin Miller, can Roger Goodell just find anybody he wants for any reason at this point? How is what he is doing good for the league? Well, look, again, I, I need to pull up the Constitution and bylaws. I believe that anything more than a $500,000 fine happens only if the matter has been referred to the Management Council's Executive Committee. So it's not Goodell ultimately imposing the fine on his own. Goodell's the one who ultimately does it, but I don't think he makes the decision. And clearly there'd be a conflict of interest there. But but what, what standing does Jerry Jones have? He's agreed to this process where the commissioner has full power. And if you're going to take on the guy who has full power, you better not wound him. You better finish the job. At Roaring R. Austria, does the fifth-year option for first-rounders have offset language? That's a good question. I don't know if it does. It's negotiated as part of the CBA. You pick it up, right, and it's guaranteed for injury only until it becomes fully guaranteed. I don't know if there's offset language or not. I would assume there is because it's part of the CBA, but that's a good question. I'm going to make a note here, and this is always compelling video content or audio content as I type this. Does fifth-year option have offset? It's got to be in the uh, in the CBA. So I'll look that. I'll research that one because I have no idea what the answer is. At the Impact 99, should Green Bay try to get something for Brett Hundley now, or is he their answer for after Rodgers? He's not their answer for after Rodgers. I, I, I think they hang on to Hundley. I, look, if I'm the Packers, I go out and sign a more experienced veteran backup because we saw last year what happens. Nick Foles comes in for Carson Wentz. Case Keenum comes in for Sam Bradford. You need somebody ready to go. Even if it threatens the starter in any way. And I don't know that having an accomplished backup would threaten Aaron Rodgers. But they typically haven't had one. It's been somebody homegrown who eventually is cut or leaves via free agency. Remember Matt Flynn? I think they need to go to Aaron Rodgers and say, hey, Aaron, 
We need to have a backup ready in the event you get injured again. We need to have a veteran backup. And uh, Aaron very well might say, I don't care what you do, just pay me. I'm the one who should be making $30 million a year, because he is. If anybody's going to get the $30 million a year, it should be Aaron Rodgers. At Ghost Musician, did the website generate any income before you were doing radio and television? Did you lose some money on all this in the beginning? I want PFT PM as many days as possible, including Saturdays. Please don't burn out. Have stats sub now and then solo. He's good at stats on fire. Really? <laughs> and there was a response from the fat wine guy. I want Mike's commentary on the idea of stats subbing for him and or stats being good. Hey, stats did a a Saturday morning shift on NBC Sports Radio. So stats, look, I, I like stats. I like working with stats. Stats is good. Stats is developing. Stats is coming into his own. Most of these folks in radio who are producers aspire to be hosts. I've noticed that doing local radio for the last 15 years, a lot of the guys who start off as producers, before you know it, they got their own shows. So I'm sure Stats would love to have his own show. Now, I don't know that he's going to sub for me on PFTPM, but I, I could see him having his own show. At one point, he's still young. He's got a long way to go. I got a 20-year head start on him. Not really. I didn't get into the business in the last few years, but he's he's got a long time to go, and he'll be fine. Just he won't be hosting PFTPM. And to answer the question, the website did not generate much income from the time it was founded in 2001 until 2006. 2006 is when Sprint became our presenting sponsor. And uh, that's when it went from being uh, a hobby into something that I knew was eventually going to cause me to stop practicing law. Because once Sprint arrived... And real money was being generated. I had to consciously start restricting my, my workflow in the legal profession. And at first, that wasn't easy because I already had existing commitments. And I had to see those through. But as I resolved cases I was handling, I just stopped taking. The, the bar went a lot higher as to what cases I was going to take on. I mean, before I was doing this a lot of my time. Yeah, I could I could I could roll the dice on a case where I thought, you know, maybe this person has something. We'll we'll play it out and see what's there. I believe in the person, I believe in the cause. We'll see if the facts back this up the way I think they may. So, uh not much money was generated. But as of 2006, that's when it shifted in 2009 is when NBC showed up and that's when that's when it became a full-time thing and then TV came after that, radio came after that. It's all part of the same thing. I mean, I basically have four jobs right now. The website, NBC TV during the season, PFT Live Radio, and the PFT Live Simulcast. And I guess five, PFT PM, but that's not making any money yet. But I, I think if I keep doing it long enough, it eventually will. The question is, how much patience do I have to keep doing it? And I know if I let stats sub, it's, it'll, you know, it'll go off the rails. And I don't think he wants to. I think I think he feels threatened by PFTPM because he's in the PFT Live camp, and PFTPM is technically competing with PFT Live for podcast listens. So I think he's I think he like kind of holds PFTPM in a in a sense of of curiosity and uh, and fear, and I kind of like that. 
At Thomas Berry, do you think Mitchell Trubisky takes a big step next season under Matt Nagy, considering his limitations under John Fox and the weapons he was working with last year? He did about as well as he could have hoped. Any thoughts on Howard guaranteeing the playoffs? That's Jordan Howard. And I remember when a guarantee was something that was rarely done. And now it happens all the time. Joe Namath before Super Bowl three, He made that great guarantee. And I don't remember a guarantee after Joe Namath until... Wasn't there a playoff series in 94 when the Rangers were trying to win their first Stanley Cup since 1940 and Mark Messier guaranteed a win? I don't think it was in a Stanley Cup final game. I remember they played Vancouver that year. But I think in one of the lower rounds, he guaranteed a win and they won. And I remember thinking, man, that's ballsy because nobody's done that since Joe Namath. Now it feels like it happens all the time. So it wouldn't surprise me if the Bears make the playoffs. Look, last year in the NFC, five of the six playoff teams hadn't made it the year before. That's the ultimate sign of parity, and that's what the NFL loves to have. This sense that any given year can be the year that your team that is downtrodden gets it together and gets to the playoffs. And let me tell you, the the Bears, four playoff appearances since 1999, that's not good. So with Pace and Nagy, we'll see where they go. We're actually talking to both Pace and Nagy together at the scouting combine on Wednesday. And, and good for the Bears. You know, they haven't been real cooperative in the recent past with anyone. And it's good that they're, they're realizing, you know what? It makes sense to get your guys out there, to get your guys talking, to get people to know your guys. Uh, because, you know, if you're a very good team, it's, it's easier to be aloof and coy. It's a lot harder when, when you're struggling to be relevant. And I think it's smart. Again, it gets back to what I was saying earlier. There are ways that you can say things. There are ways that you can be cooperative. There are ways that you can grant access without screwing up your strategic interests. At some days, the dog, are tags better for teams than players? Is it possible more players will follow the strategies of Kirk Cousins and Le'Veon Bell? Look, the tag right now is better for players because here's what happened. It used to be that the franchise tag was calculated by taking the average of the five highest paid players based on cap numbers for the prior year. Starting in 2011, they came up with a new formula. And the formula is based upon the percentage of the cap that the franchise tag has consumed on a five-year average. Now that we're seven, eight years into this, it's smoothed out and settled on at a certain percentage. So every year, what's going to happen is the cap percentage for a given position, quarterback, running back, receiver, whatever, it's going to be the same. And because the markets haven't gone up the way that the salary cap has gone up, the franchise tag keeps getting better and better. So Le'Veon Bell, $12.1 million last year as the recipient of the franchise tag in Pittsburgh, the market for running backs was $8 million. It was ridiculous how much better it was to be the franchise tag player than to go out and get a market-level contract. So it's good for players, and players that are willing to carry the injury risk and play it out. And you got to be willing to push back against a lot. You're pushing back against all the momentum because all the momentum's pointing towards sign the guy, sign the guy, sign the guy, and the team knows how to put the squeeze on you in the local media. The Steelers did that last year with Le'Veon Bell. It's like playing craps and betting against the shooter. Your best odds at the craps table are to bet against the shooter. I remember back in college, we, before the first time I ever went to a casino, we broke down all the odds on the craps table, and we realized that the best odds of any bet on the craps table is to bet against the shooter. That's why if you look at the felt, the way that the 
the, the board is laid out, the hardest thing to reach, the hardest place to drop your coin or your chip is on the, the don't pass slash don't come line. And look, it's hard when you're at the table to do it. And good luck. Good luck putting your money on don't pass if you're the shooter at a craps table. You get dirty looks. You get insults. You get all sorts of stuff. So that same mindset applies to the, the player that decides to go against the grain on the franchise tag. Now, Washington played it so so poorly that they, they never used that to their advantage. They just refused to negotiate a fair contract with Kirk Cousins. But they kept offering him the franchise tender. But I think the Steelers played it a little bit better, and it's one of the reasons why there was a sense that maybe Le'Veon Bell was going to give in. And to his credit, he didn't. The artificial deadline came six days ago. They didn't sign him to a long-term deal. I bet they're still going to try before next Tuesday. But I hope that, 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 that Bell holds firm and refuses to sign until the Steelers decide to tag him or not tag him. And then it becomes easier to figure out what a long-term deal is worth. At Andrew Ye, I was intrigued but skeptical about your suggestion the other day to have the draft order give preference to the most successful teams. Don't you think that would upset the competitive balance of the league? Would you then have to do a snake draft format like fantasy football? Probably, probably. But I'm I, look, the best approach for the NFL is to have no draft at all. My suggestion of letting the the Super Bowl champion pick its spot in the draft is more of a of a, a reflection of how it was when the rookie wage scale wasn't in place and ridiculous money went with being the first pick in the draft because it, it wasn't helping the worst teams. It was putting the worst teams in position to have to give a huge salary cap and cash commitment to a guy who may end up sucking. And, and often their scouting departments weren't as good as the scouting departments of other teams, which got them in this problem in the first place. I mean, you're expecting the worst franchises in the NFL to make the best decisions with the most riding on them when there's this huge cash and cap figure associated with the top picks in the draft. So I don't know that I think that should be the case now. I just think there should be no draft. And I know that's regarded as anti-American to suggest there be no draft. The reality is the draft is anti-American. Telling an incoming crop of employees where they are going to work, where they will spend their lives and their careers, at least for the first four or five years, that's what's anti-American. Because if I'm a if I'm a Miami kid and I want to play for the Dolphins and the Dolphins want me to play for them, it shouldn't be a matter of me being available when they have their draft pick. And the easiest way to prevent things from getting out of whack is to grant salary cap space for the teams that otherwise had quote-unquote earned top picks. The Browns, instead of having the first overall pick, would have the biggest chunk of money available to go out and sign rookies. Because I look at it this way. It's not going to be like Oklahoma and Nebraska in the 70s where they went six deep at all the key positions. Guys are going to realize that I'm signing on with a team that already has a starting running back. So why the hell do I think I'm going to play running back there? And that's where the agent, it's just like free agency, right? Do you think that that uh, Kirk Cousins is going to sign a long-term deal with the Packers? No. Now, the Packers don't want him, but that's part of it, too. I mean, we can have this vague concern that the Cowboys are going to sign everybody. But if you have limited cap space, 
based upon how you finished the year before. And there's a broader salary cap that prevents what you can do anyway. And you've already got a depth chart and cash commitments and contractual commitments to certain players. You're going to go out and overspend for a guy who's going to be sitting on the bench for three years? No. So trust me. Not having the draft is the best outcome for everybody. Well, it's the best outcome for the players. It's too late for the NFL to do it because the draft has grown into this spectacle, a show about nothing that 100,000 people are going to attend in Dallas and millions more are going to watch on Fox, an unprecedented audience. It's too late to put the genie back in the bottle on this. But none of the major sports leagues that have salary caps should have a draft. It's just the way it got started. It was like that when we got here. Now, is there a way the NFL can create some sort of a replacement for the draft where it would be essentially signing day for incoming players? Yeah, you could do that. I don't know that it would be as big of a deal. I don't know that it would nearly be as big of a deal as this. It just it's, 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 it's like Christmas Day for football fans. You find out what's inside your present. So I don't see it going anywhere even though it should. All right, I'm going on way too long. Let's see what else we got here. Uh, I don't know. I should probably wrap it up. There are some good ones here, but I've been going for an hour. Here's one from N. Toth, y'all. Did you ever practice personal injury law? Very rarely. Very rarely. I didn't like, I and, and I don't mean this as an editorial comment about anyone who handles personal injury cases. I never felt right taking a portion of, of the money that someone got for some serious injury or death. Because that's how it works. Most people can't afford to pay a lawyer, so you get contingency fees in cases where there's somebody who can't afford to, to, to hire a lawyer and pay by the hour. They don't have the resources to do it. So you offer to represent them at no cost, but your fee is a percentage of what you recover. And if you're good at screening cases you end up taking on cases where you know there's going to be a significant recovery. And in a lot of these cases, you don't have to do much work. I never felt right about that. I just didn't. I had one case, one big injury case where I got very, very lucky and I found a document that ended up being incredibly important to the case and it required a very aggressive legal argument. It was one of those aha eureka moments as I was going through a stack of documents three feet high. And it's like, does this mean what I think it means? And it did. And I pushed it and I pushed it and I pushed it. And I ended up getting far more from a client who'd been horribly injured, permanently injured. He's riding his bike cross country and somebody fell asleep driving. And it was an insurance issue. It was, it was a complicated argument. And that's the only time I felt good about it because I felt like I earned the fee in that case. Other times, I just feel like it's hard to earn the fee. And, and, and rarely I would take on those cases. And a lot of times I'd cut the fee if I, if I don't feel, if I feel like I didn't put enough time in to justify it. Now, employment cases, which I handled a lot, I always felt like I, I earned my fee in those cases because the employer never admitted to violating the person's rights. It was always a fight. It was always a knockdown drag out. And if you got a recovery for your client, you, you definitely earned it because going into it, the response always was, we deny everything. We didn't do anything wrong. Come, come and get us. And we're going to make your life miserable every step of the way. So I didn't do much to answer your question. Uh, at Terry Gensler 14, are the Rams planning on tagging Marcus Peters twice and then letting him walk? That's still going to be a lot of money for Marcus Peters. I think they're going to evaluate him and decide whether or not they're going to sign him to a long-term contract, and they want to see how he meshes with Wade Phillips. The thing is, how many more years does Wade Phillips have 
as a defensive coordinator. I think Phillips can handle Peters. Phillips has seen every size, shape, and type of player throughout a lifetime of coaching. So this could be that Peters is only going to work out as long as Phillips is there as the defensive coordinator. But it feels like it's got a bit of a short-term uh, element to it. At Antoth, y'all 32, can Rob Gronkowski sign a contract with WWE instead of coming back to the NFL? I mean, he can retire from the NFL. I don't think the Patriots can recover any bonus money. His signing bonus has been fully earned. He has an option bonus. I don't think option bonuses are subject to recoupment. I'd have to research that, but I don't think they are. They work like signing bonuses, but I don't think you can go after them if the guy if the guy leaves early because those are more cap management devices, not the free money or what players believe is free money when they sign. So, yeah, he could. He could. We still haven't heard anything about it three weeks after the Super Bowl. We haven't heard what Gronk's going to do. The Patriots kind of need to know what's going to happen because they, they need to be coming up with another plan at the tight end position if Gronk's not coming back. At Vikes Fan NC, could the Vikings get Phillip Rivers from the Chargers cheaper than moving on Drew Brees or Case Keenum? I I, I don't think that's good. I don't think Phillip Rivers wants to play for any other team at this point. He's set in his ways. He's finally gotten comfortable with the whole L.A., San Diego thing. I don't think he wants to move his family. I, I mean, I, I like the creativity. But I think if the Vikings are going to go for an older quarterback, I think they just make a play for Drew Brees. If you're going to go all in. At Adair 07, do you think Denver is a viable spot for Drew Brees? Denver's the first place I thought of for Brees. I've been pushing the Vikings angle because I think Brees would be more inclined to go to Minnesota. He saw how that fan base reacted to the Minneapolis miracle. But the Broncos need someone like Brees who can come in and take over the entire locker room. I don't think Kirk Cousins can walk in the door and take over the locker room the way Breeze can. They need someone like Peyton Manning. I think Peyton Manning, Drew Breeze, and Tom Brady are the three guys who could walk in and take over the team. And Brady obviously isn't available. Manning is retired, if you haven't heard. Breeze is the guy that I think they need in Denver. And the question becomes, yeah, look, he said he's staying with the Saints. And there's no reason not to believe him. But I'm still not slamming the door on something unexpected happening until a deal is done between Breeze and the Saints. And it's now been six weeks and a day since the Saints season ended. And we are two weeks and two days away from the start of free agency. And there's still no deal for Drew Breeze. At Jackson Chiefs, I have a question for Florio. What the hell happened? I don't know what you're referring to. You're referring to Marcus Peters? Well, I don't know. I don't know. But it happened. At B Flow Faux Show on keeping Blake Bortles, was there an incentive in keeping him because of good chemistry in the locker room versus a new guy, a.k.a. better to deal with the evil that you know? Yeah, and you're right. You bring in a new guy, who knows what's going to happen? And also that subtle message that is sent to the players who are doing what's asked of them. You're going to get financially rewarded here if you do it. And they're going to have a whole slew of guys. And they've spent plenty of money on free agents. Plenty. Malik Jackson, for example. Who else did they spend on? that came in recently. I'm missing someone. But it's the younger guys that, oh, A.J. AJ Boye. But it's the younger guys that need that message that we'll take care of you and we'll, we'll treat you fairly. And it's hard to expect there are any, any guys in the Jaguars locker room who don't believe Bortles got treated fairly. 
at RevWebs219. Just finished Seinfeldia and loved it. Any other book suggestions of this ilk? I remember now that I had mentioned Seinfeldia when someone asked a question at one point about books. I'm looking at my phone now. Isn't it, isn't it sad that we don't buy books anymore? Although I did order Pete Rozelle's biography, hard copy, just because I feel like that's one I want to I put on my bookshelf. Uh, although I'm tempted to go ahead and just download it as well so I can read it on the trip to Indianapolis. But uh, I'm scrolling through here. I don't have any good recommendations like Seinfeldia. Uh, you know, I, I, I learn a lot from nonfiction, but uh, I got a bad habit of not finishing nonfiction. I got a bad habit. And fiction, either it catches me in the first chapter or I just feel like it's it's a chore. I got a couple, I got a couple Stephen King books that I bought that I just lost interest in. Sleeping Beauties, baby. Ugh. Lost interest early. So I, I'm not ashamed to say I got a couple of the Kiss biographies on my phone. Face the Music by Paul Stanley and Make Up to Break Up by Peter Chris. There, there was a period a couple of years ago where I just, I, I wanted to learn as much as I could about, they, just, they were a force of nature for me when I was a kid. It, it, it was just, it's something you never forget. When you, when you wake up to the realization that there's this band out there that does everything different than everyone else, and they got the white makeup with the black designs and the, the fire and spitting blood and, and breathing fire, and, the, and, the, and the, you know, the music wasn't spectacular, but it was enough. The music was kind of a byproduct to the lifestyle, to the attitude. And, and they made, the, they've explained this in the past, they made the show that they would pay to go see. And, and that was a guiding principle for me back when we started PFT. It's like, okay, what do we do here? Well, we make the destination that we'd spend time at. It's that simple. So what would I want as a fan? What would I want as a consumer? That's what I would want. That's what I made. So blame it all on Paul Stanley, because I think he's the one that explained it that way. All right, I got to go on that note, on a high note or something less than that. I, I may try to do something before we head out to Indianapolis tomorrow, just because I, 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 and I didn't do this for the, Oh, please, please keep doing it. I, I, as of a week ago, I thought, you know, I, yeah, a couple times a week is fine. Let, let's see if doing it fewer times results in more listens per episode. But enough of you have said that you like it, that uh, I'll keep doing it as many times as I can. So maybe I'll get one posted tomorrow before we head out to Indy. If not, I should be posting some from Indianapolis that will largely consist of interviews that we do there. It's going to be your first crack in many cases at hearing what these folks have to say, because I think it'll make it to PFTPM before it makes it anywhere else. Either way, enjoy the combine. We'll be available all week on radio. I'll do the PFTPM podcast as many days as I can this week, but uh, off to Indy we go. And uh, it should be an interesting week at the combine with everything that's happening. Thanks as always for some of your time. We will talk again soon. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.